Today's show is brought to you by A&E's hit series, Bates Motel. Catch the new season when it returns Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern on A&E. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is Brian, podcast starting in a second. Listen, if you dig the show, uh, subscribe to it, itunes.com slash the moment. Even if you're listening to it normally in the Slate Daily Feed, the way you can get uh, bonus content, like extra episodes and a more direct connection to the show is iTunes.com slash the moment. Subscribe to the podcast there and uh, you will never miss it. Thanks. Show coming up. Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. So my guest today is Ethan Kane and Ethan, I, you don't know this, but the people who listen to the show do. Like, um, I never get nervous doing this, and I never feel <laughs> in any way less than comfortable. But, I mean, you have been such a huge figure in, in, in my life since 1988, when I was 21 years old or 22, that I'm just so excited to get to talk to you this we way. Kind so of, we kind of look this. like each other a little bit, too, no. which is cool. We have the same length hair, same color hair. <laughs> well, yeah, I remember seeing on your picture around the time of your first book, which was Emperor of the Air, this incredible short story collection. You were just a few years older than I was. You know, I was just graduating college. And Thank you for not saying older than me and saying older than I. That's nice. Hey, well, there you go. See, now that's, this is why I'm fucking nervous, because if I make a <laughs> radical mistake, you're going to nail me on it. That's not cool. We're talking. I mean, we can talk about whether the, uh, grammar matters in speech. Do you think, do you notice? Do you always notice? Oh, I always notice. I notice when my kids... English teachers say your child did real good on her paper. Well, that's not okay. And that's but that but no, <laughs> that's you know, not okay. It's, it's a, there's something more meaningful. That's that means a lot. And it's a Midwesternism. I realize it's not like a grammatical error. It's a regionalism. People say he did real good, mm-hmm. and there's something that's more meaningful about real good than really well. It's twice as meaningful. I think real good comes out of sports broadcasters too. Yeah. yeah. And and there's something that sometimes people want to say that to make you more comfortable, or they're used right. to talking to people for whom that's better. Yeah. But the one that drives me crazy is the misuse of I. Oh, yeah. That's the worst. When, uh, Obama does that all the time. Excuse me. Uh, someone gave, he gave a book to Michelle and I. I'm like, geez. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that, the misuse of I yeah. uh, gets me and anyways gets me. Can you cut me. that from the broadcast? No. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Ethan Kanan hates Obama. No, I just, I have, I have quibbles with his grammar. I think he's been great as a president. Well, yeah, he's a brilliant person and a great president and, you know, a good writer. Yeah. I don't know if you've, have you read his books? Well, the truth is, my wife was so infatuated with those books that I had like a little sort of sexual jealousy of the thing. You know, it's like, she'd be lying in bed, she'd be going, oh my God, you know, reading these, this book. And I, <laughs> Dreams of My it, Father? It, oh yeah, almost made me vote Republican in, in uh, 04. Good. That's good to know. <laughs> that it drove you that crazy. So, um, your your first book was this, uh, a real sensation, a literary sh- short storybook. And your second book, The Palace Thief, your second collection of four yeah. stories, I would say there are stories in that book that I, for a long time, I read them once a year. Wow. And I'm so happy that your new book is is so great, A Doubter's Almanac, which came out, um, I think this will air probably a week from now, so the book came out a week ago. Yeah. And it's been eight years writing, right? Uh, well, it's 08 to 2016. Yes, you are right. I mean, I, it's, I took a couple of weekends off in there, so it's probably seven but, years. But, but close, the yeah. problem for you walking in to, to the buzzsaw that's this show today is that <laughs> I have actually read everything you've ever written. Oh, God. So I know the worst thing is when somebody hasn't read anything. Right, But right. I have to think this is a close second. No, yeah, no, I wouldn't. Th- no, it's not a close be, second. Be, fact, because, you know, there are things in, in a 
weird way, like uh, there are call and responses yes, from the early work to right. this book. I was wondering if anybody would notice that. I mean, there are some early math <laughs> prodigies in these early books. Well, and you know, you can't look. I can never pronounce uh, Butterzog. Butter I'm not Zerlum. sure that's pronounced correctly myself, but. You know, when when one looks at, at that story, but even accountant, right? We find this idea of right. people coveting and stealing and getting caught, right? And so, uh, my sense is that you, whatever the thing is that you took that you shouldn't have, you didn't get caught. Uh, I'm going to take the fifth because that's right. <laughs> and yeah, that is right. Can we cut the interview? Jason, so, just push that the button to your right. Right. <laughs> because only <laughs> only somebody who uh, didn't get caught would be as obsessed. Right, of with course, it. but thank God for that. I was just talking to one of my old students named Joe Fashler, who writes a column for the Atlantic on uh, your favorite line from literature, and he's a wonderful guy. He was a student at Iowa, and the story I chose was a silver dish by Saul Bellow. I don't know if you know that story, but this is, I chose it because it's beautiful last line or this extraordinary last line, which was that was how he was, which is an almost indefinable line. It's not beautiful. It doesn't mean anything almost, but coming after that story, it's incredible. But it's a story about stealing. There's a moment in that story when Bella writes about this character who, when he's coming back from Kampala, Uganda, he has an overcoat and it's full of hashish and he just throws it down on the counter of the customs agent, assuming that with his ruddy face and, and high complexion, he'll pass. And he does. And he says, but why'd I do it? I don't know, but risk is important. Right. Risk is important for feeling alive. Risk is also important for writing. You know, it's it's how things happen. You know, if you behave, nobody's ever written a book in which everybody behaves. I mean, you can't write that book. But misbehavior is, that's what, I mean, misbehavior breeds other, breeds other misbehavior. That's what plot is. It's doing something wrong and facing the repercussions and having to do more things wrong to get out of that original thing. And that's, that's what, how you discover story. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. And that absolutely is all at play in your work. But what do you think it is about this idea of, in the new book, the chapter, I'm forgetting the title of the chapter, but the one chapter, differential, you know, when things are good, the one chapter. When, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's yeah, the title right. of that chapter? Oh, God. Um... Well, it's this moment in this book where things are very difficult for this family, and there's a moment in the book where yeah. they have a good uh, a summer, a small p- period of, uh, of time. and Reversion to the mean. No, it's not, not reversion to the mean. That's no, that's after. Back. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, back. that's right. a chapter yeah, after. Yeah. The the interesting thing in this chapter is that there's a moment where the sister and brother decide to get along. Yeah. And it leads to her expressing why for her as a girl, the, the, the disappointment of a father is so yeah. enormous. You know, the sibling relationship is a tough one. I can see that in my kids. I see it in all kids. You know, all kids. Most adults, you know, they have okay relationships with their siblings, but not necessarily great ones. It's colored by some fundamental competition. Yeah, you talk about the their 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 rivalry, but there's also this coming this attempt to find and there is that. And so there's this other half. There's this the sense that you're competing for the affection and approval of your parents. There's also the sense that you were soldiers from the same battle. You know the old joke is why did the grandparents and the grandkids get along so well because they have a common enemy. <laughs> sure. And there is that. There's, there's, there's that, too. And it's a strange phenomenon that the, that the brother, I grew up with the brother, the brother that you fight with is also the brother you feel the closest to that you would defend more than anyone else in the world. It's a strange contrary dynamic that people have with their siblings. They fight with them, but nobody else can say anything bad about them. Well, sure. Uh, but I would say the, the, the thing I was thinking about a lot reading the book well, first of all, uh, trees. I have really. It, it's interesting. Your trees are right there at the beginning of Emperor of the Air, and yeah. uh, really significant but in this. Trees book. are the greatest things. I mean, when do we think trees are beautiful because they're in beautiful places, or 
is there something beautiful about a tree? And it's also very mathematical. Like a tree is dividing. You know, it's, it divides and divides and divides, which is kind of like what math does. When, when, when you work, are you conscious that you're using, like, are, are you conscious of the fact, oh, 30 years ago, um, I wrote this story that really centered around a tree and its role in, in no, these people. Never. It's... And now I'm using a tree again in a way that re- remembers not only my thing, but the giving tree and loneliness and all mm. this stuff. Like, a- as you start out, are you aware of it or do you become aware of it as you're working? Well... I only became aware of this briefly after I finished the book. I thought, oh, right. I had already written something like that. And then again, when you mentioned it five minutes ago. But there's also something that, you know, symbols are not symbols because Harold Bloom says they're symbols. Harold Bloom says they're symbols because the human consciousness produces these things. I mean, the sea is where we came from. The sea means calm, means peace, means fertility, because that's what you feel when you walk to the sea, not because some English professor. You're saying we carry them in the collective unconscious. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I think I see so many writers like making these mistakes of like trying to insert symbols rather than let the story make symbols. Well, so then you you buy like the deconstructionist idea that it's not... um, I would never admit this. Well, you just did, kind of, because you're saying... (laughs) If I knew what the deconstructionist ideas were, I could disagree or or, or agree more heartily. You can't write the books and then say, you know, you can't actually be an intellectual and then be like, I don't know. Well, I'm not an intellectual. I mean, I'm not an intellectual anyway. I mean, I'm a craftsman. Are you a professor? I'm a professor. Do you toil in books? I toil in books, but I also toil uh, with wood. I toil with uh, electric wire. I mean, I toil with a lot of things. I'm a mechanic. When I look at stories, I look at them like a mechanic would look at stories. You know, my closest friend in Iowa is an air conditioning mechanic, and he's a brilliant guy because he can fix any engine. It just knocks me out. He comes over with his little multi-tester, and he's like, he fix anything. He fixes $50 million uh, air conditioning units. He doesn't know what's wrong with them. He goes in and figures it out. That's the kind of brilliance. And I, that's how I approach art, with that kind of um, mechanics approach. I certainly understand, like, the idea of uh, um, people approaching it as, like, primitive art, but that, that doesn't feel like the work you produce isn't, like, like what we normally think of as primitive art, right? Because there's um, a lot of a- awareness of whether it happens in the rewriting or the writing. I mean, symbols aren't left out there kind of alone and, and unadjudicated and undealt with, right? You're, yeah, but, you know, when I, when I, ha- when I hear people say... I wanted to use the automobile as a symbol of the culture, and that's why there's an automobile in every scene. I think that you know that might make sense to you. It's fine if I get you to, but you know that's that's not something a reader notices. A reader wants to see a plot, and a reader wants to see human interaction. Reader wants to feel that there's no longer a book that he's been immersed in somebody else's life, and that's to me the art is to is to know it, to know how to do it well enough that you can disappear. It's, it's, it's an empathy skill more than a writing skill. On Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, Bates Motel reopens on a e for its fourth season. A modern-day prequel to Alfred Hitchcock's iconic film Psycho, Bates Motel stars Freddie Highmore as Norman Bates and Vera Farmiga in the Emmy-nominated role of Norma. This season finds Norma and Norman suspicious of one another, and the trust issues will be worse than ever as their mother-son relationship continues to crumble. Watch Norman evolve into the infamous Norman Bates as this season finds him completely losing his grip on reality. Bates Motel knows how to deliver the crazy, and season four promises to get crazier than ever. Be sure to tune in to Bates Motel Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern on A&E. I wanted to ask you this this question about um, 
a pure pursuit, right? Because you're describing sort of a pure pursuit. You mean the mathematics? Well, the the way you're talking about yeah. empathy and writing. Oh, I say, I'm sorry. But I I no, but what I was going to, yes, yeah. that's the exact parallel I was going to draw was yeah. to the pure pursuit that your main character for the first half of the book is is after. Yeah. Uh, which he's, is, he's trying something that is both unattainable, inutile. <laughs> there's, there's no reason to do it. There's no reason to be obsessed with it other than... Uh, a programming of a brain that creates an obsession, which is it's the same with f writing fiction. I, who would have thunk if you would have been dropped down on this planet and someone said, there's a, there's a bunch of organisms around here and they, they tend to look at these little objects for a long time, get involved in them and feel that there are other organisms. Like, would you invest in that? I don't think so, right? <laughs> I was saying, just saying that I was driving the, the other day and there's this traffic jam. I was like, miserable traffic jam. I'm like, what the hell is this, you know? And I finally get to the curb and I look up and there's were wildflowers in bloom and all these cars that just slowed down a couple miles an hour to see the wildflowers. And it was an incredible moment where like everybody who was on their way to work was pissed off. They were still slowing down for the wildflowers. Not to sound too California-ish about that, but that's amazing to me that despite the inutility of all this stuff, we are wired to just love this, to love gossip, which is what literature is. To love hearing about someone else, to, to love to see how other people have done things wrong. But, but what, yes, what, what, I, I want to return to, to one thing when we talk about the. Let me the just add one more thing, Go. and also to rehearse for your own death. I mean, that's what reading is about. You read a, you know, you read a novel. Generally, most novels are about a life, or not most, but many novels are about a life. This novel is about a life, birth to death, and it gives you a chance to look at it, do it once, do it twice. You know, read another novel, read Moby Dick or whatever it is. Read. Read Augie March. Read some, yeah, some novel about a life, and you can live a life and live a life. And imagine how you will face the, the inevitable. And so, are you thinking about that all the time when you're reading and, and Death. writing? Death is it a? Uh, I'd say I am thinking about it all the time. Not necessarily when I'm reading and writing. It's uh, it's more one day at a time when you're writing. Just trying to think about getting to the end of the day. But yeah, I mean, it is, it is this little. On a, this, it, you know, when you're a kid, when you first hear of infinity, and that blows your mind, depresses you that you can't understand it. You hear that the universe is doesn't end. Someone says, well, no, it folds back on itself and that kind of satisfies you for a little bit, but really, no, still, no, still, it doesn't quite yeah. work. Um, that's the death thing that's hanging behind everything, you know. Yeah, but You're turning 50, you gotta be feeling that. Oh, I think about it, and yeah, of course, and um, I mean, it's very indulgent to think about it a lot. And instead of using empathy and trying to like give to the people around you who yeah. you love. Yeah. Because it, it really leads to solipsism if yeah. you don't use it in the right way, those thoughts, yeah. I think. But, it, like, I'm interested in why you blanch so much an intellectual, right? Because, you know, while explaining that you're not an intellectual, you use the word inutile, which is a word that only educated people know. And, in fact, it's a separative word because it's a word that most people, in fact, wouldn't know what it means. You might say right. there's no utility to that or it's useless. Right. But instead of saying those things, you said inutile. And now you may think – I know that that's how you think, right? right? But you're famously someone of incredible intellectual accomplishment. You were a Stanford college engineering student who became a writer. And then you were a Harvard med student and graduated from medical school and a doctor. So – what is it? That's not intellectual accomplishment. I think of it. Well, that's but, but what? Yeah, what is? Why is that word so loaded? And I'm, I'm. For yeah, you. Um, probably because I don't like what intellectuals have done with books. Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, but right. But uh, what I was going to say to you is that 
when Milo is talking at the uh, in in the second half of the book about how nobody's taken his work and moved it forward, yeah. and how angry he is about that fact. Yeah. Like, there's the Fields Medal in a box, and he no one's done anything with his work. And I I can't help but think I couldn't help but think about the fact that you achieved the equivalent of the Fields Medal with Emperor of the Air, and that you were lauded. But but essentially, the kind of fiction that you wrote died around that time. Right. It, but according to those who decide those things. Yeah, Not for the readers, yeah. but it ended then. Right. Earnest fiction right. about life and death and empathy right. Right. became uh, inutile. Yeah. And so, uh, and I connected those things. And I'm yeah. so not surprised to hear you say what those who talk about books. So uh, I'm wondering how that's landed f- for, for you, whether that you know, when you would see the way the first book was lauded and then as you would see people almost hitting you for the stuff that you knew was still resonant for readers, yeah. how you process that and how it made you feel. Well, you have to make artistic decisions. Decisions, And actually, I take that back. You don't really have to make that many artistic decisions. But one of the things you have to decide, most artistic things, what I'm saying, are not decisions, but they are, they are sort of unavoidable trains of effect. I mean... Like when you start a book, people always say the first decision a writer makes is point of view, which is like a bunch of crap. That's not true. Yeah. Well, how do you how do you yeah. decide that? Yeah, it's just like whatever comes to you is how you start it. Well, usually it's a voice or something else. And if you're making a decision in your book, you're probably doing it wrong. It's it's some unconsciousness that's writing the book for you. And and people talk about decisions, but there are some artistic decisions. One of the artistic decisions I think you got to have to kind of make is who you're who you're writing for in some way. Yeah, and that's in multiple respects. Like, who's your audience going to be? Or the very question, are you writing for your audience? Are you writing for yourself? Are you writing for the truth, for beauty? Are you writing for the surface beauty of the words? Or are you writing for the truth of the, uh, of the power of the content? And if you're trying to write something that'll look right and true 100 years from now, when, you know, the latest rage is silly and, and old-looking, this great Saul Bellow story called The Silver Dish that... We were talking about Anna's... Yeah, the, the one, the last yeah, line. Yeah, Bellow. And I still don't know what happened here. He does this crazy thing. It's a beautiful story. It's third person, a man talking about his father. And twice in the story, suddenly it, it kind of slips into first person. And I'd never noticed that before. It was in the New Yorker in 1978, September 1978. You never noticed until... You didn't remember until today? I never two first person. I still don't know what that means. And I was thinking about that today. Was, did Bellow just... Was this like a re like a, in those days you had to type things over again? Nineteen seventy eight. It wasn't like you just changed it on your word processor. So he, did he just type it? And he let, he originally written first person maybe and happened by mistake leave those lines in and fiction editor of the New Yorker just didn't notice it. Or was Bellow making this like was Bellow prescient and doing this thing ahead of his time of saying, you know, the way that now the 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 narrator always has the same first name as the writer and all the sort you're of meta fictional post, stuff. You're saying the, the, yeah. the meta postmodern yeah the tropes. meta stuff. But, was yeah, but this Bellow's little wink at that? It's like, it doesn't make any sense. This is a story, third person, the guy's name is, is Woody and Morris, and Woody's telling the story, and he's, he's he, 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 and suddenly there are two lines in that story that are in first person. You know, my father wanted to be me, me to be me to be an American. It's one of the lines, or something close to that, and yes, they let us in. And is he, or is he saying, is he making some nod in his... I don't know the story. I have to go read the oh, story. Oh, you got to read the story. I'll it's read it tonight. It's, a, it's I mean, I'll not read a well-known tonight. story, but it's maybe the great, one of the great stories of the last century, I think. But, but it's a, this is a way to circle back, a way of answering the question about, about the effect of postmodernism and metafiction on the thing that you do, or on how the thing yeah. that you do is received. And as I say, this, this idea that you look at this work 
and it is true, it's hard to think, like you can draw a line from a bunch of those people. I could draw a line from like, you know, the mom story rain. Like you could draw a line from a whole bunch of people through Cheever to you, to what you do, William Kennedy. Mm -hmm. There's a bunch, right? Harder to draw the line from you out, from you in terms of people who are younger than you, who are picking up the baton. Interesting. And I wonder, now I could be missing them, but I read a lot. And I, yeah. I think that in a way, like there's Richard Ford before you, there are these, yeah. but after you, I'm not sure who the people are sort of writing fiction that isn't in any way meta. meta. Um, I which see by a, the I means see. just for um, aware of itself. Yeah. And commenting on itself and, and pop co- and winking, winking and full of pop culture. Now, yeah, but I, I look love at Murakami. Murakami yeah. is to me. Are you know um, our great living writer, and he's certainly also he can do both things. He certainly utilizes those tools. But I also see this thing like say George Saunders is a wonderful writer. Yeah, I agreed. But I see like his latest book feels to me like an attempt to actually move back the other way. That he got a he did the wild thing when he was young, and now he realized as you get older, you can't help facing the truth. You know, you have children, you see death. You've seen loss. You've seen disappointment. You can't help facing the truth. It's not and his like the, the book. Uh, well, Mark, tenth of December, but no. But December, in that book, you have Semplica Girl. Yeah, but you but have still, like there's the Semplica Girl. There's a there's an emotional uh, directness to that that is um, much more directly sincere than earlier. Well, it's interesting, right? Because it used to be a risk to do the meta thing. But then emotional sincerity, I'm gl- so glad, you know, I mean, that's look, a huge risk. It, emotional right, sincerity that, is the biggest friggin' risk. Excuse me. It's much more risky than some you're wild You're excusing thing. yourself for saying friggin'? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, the, whatever the fuck you want, dude. You're on a podcast. This is an NPR. Um, but when, like, when, when you think about the fact that Wallace wrote about Mark Lehner, you know, Wallace, who basically invented or certainly moved forward the whole idea of meta and postmodern fiction... I mean, he also said that, like, there was a tremendous value in earnest, real-life yeah. emotion and was kind of chasing it with the toolkit yeah. that he had. But it seems like all the people who followed him forgot that essential part yeah. of it, maybe. Yeah. And he was, you know, if I read another story with footnotes, I'm going to scream. Right. Um, I mean, not his, which... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, by students, I'm, I mean, you know... <laughs> Like, you think you're, this is new? Like, you want me to, like, move my eyes down from here and read this whole damn thing in, in single point type and that single space? And the rest of the story's double space. Then I got to find where I was and go back. Yeah, you have to really earn it to do that. Yeah. I mean, you better be or, David or Foster Wallace. If you were the first one to do it, maybe it's interesting, but I don't know. That's, that's not my thing. Um, um, was it hard, though, to, to, to continue? I have a footnote in this new book, though. I have one footnote. So but I'm it was proud of. Congratulations. Was it, was it hard for you? I mean, you also have a makeshift boat that would be probably impossible to. I mean, you have certain. No, it's like, possible. I did the research. You, you did it? Yeah. Did you build oh, yeah. the boat? Yeah, I weighed it. I knew how much it weighed. No, I didn't build it, but I think it'd be kind of cool to do that. And you do have like a magical, you have a magical chain. Um, right. That uh, can I say one other thing about what we're talking about with intellectuals? I, I think like books, books are taught wrong. I, I think this country has not figured out how to teach English. And, why? How? Uh, because I, you know, I think the way to teach English is to say, let's let's take a book and let's just read it and say, look at this beautiful paragraph. I mean, look at this. You know, and perhaps talk about how what it means in terms of your own experience of life. But to make careers out of uh, certainly in the in the in the academy to make careers it's nothing new to make careers out of microanalyzing and stuff and losing the beauty of it you feel the same way I do we've lost something these great readers of the fifties and sixties and seventies would walk around and give you books because they just moved them to tears that somehow got lost 
No, it's true. You know, I've given out so many copies of, I don't know if you've ever read David Benioff's City of Thieves. I have not. You would love it. Yeah. It would be your favorite book because really? it has no, yeah, because he's just telling yeah. a very Ethan Cannon-ish yeah. story about yeah. uh, got two guys who are like brothers. Yeah. And in a difficult situation. Yeah. And they have to find a way to use the best of themselves. Yeah. To get through it. Yeah. And there's no, there's no gloss on top of it. There's yeah. no part of it that's uh, winking at you. Yeah. It's heartfelt. Yeah. Really smart and really heartfelt. Yeah. And I give this book out to people all the time. You know, I'll give Murakami's books out to people and I'll give George Saunders books out to people. But no matter what somebody says they want to read, when I hand them, you know, like I've given out. 100 copies of Palace Thief in my life, starting when I was young, like when that book first came out. Thanks. And you give that book to somebody. I mean, Jason, our producer here is a kid. He's 23 years old, 23, 24, and didn't know your work Jiu-jitsu before expert. this. Yeah. Jiu-jitsu expert. Didn't know your work before this, but, you know, immediately said, like, oh, that book was so meaningful. Yeah. Even though it was written so long ago and right. there was no internet in the book. Uh, That's right. It was written before the internet. God. Those two kids would have, they would have been able to do oh, everything yeah. differently. Yeah. But, Plus but, the culture changed so drastically that-, that, that yeah, Everything would have been fine. Things. Yeah. They wouldn't need a secret language. But when you do get somebody to read a book, that's a book written without pretense. Yeah. They react to it with so much gratitude. You know what? I keep, I was just talking about this, that maybe I even said it just now. I'm, I'm forgetting if I mentioned this to you or just a few minutes ago, but you really do have to decide whether you're trying to write something- beautiful or something true. I mean, that is the decision you kind of have to make. Beautiful or true? Yeah. What I mean, do you mean? Whether you need to write, whether you're trying to write a sentence that sounds good or a sentence that's true, because you can't do both. Both don't work. There are not enough words to choose fully beautiful words when you're writing the truth. Now, you know, and I think the great writers, when they write their beautiful passages, they're like little interludes. Like getting back to this Bellow story, the culmination of that story is that sentence That was how he was. That was how he was. Five words, two of which are the same. That was how he was. Nondescript words. You'd have a lot of trouble identifying even what the parts of speech are, right? Like, what's that? Uh, You know, we can identify a couple of verbs in there. Meaningless. It has tremendous power because it comes out. It comes from the story before it. But what I'm, what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is, and that is the truthful statement. There are interludes in that story when the action slows down, Bella gets on a, or not, I said Bella, but I actually mean the character, although maybe Bella meant Bella, gets on a streetcar. You know, uh, they got a couple ri- hours ride in the blizzard in Chicago and they're on the streetcar and that's when the language gets gorgeous because there's no truth in that particular, that's, that's an interlude between moments of truth. And that's, you know, that's when writers will, you know, writers like to think they can write really nice paragraphs and those are the writers that, paragraphs that the writers write for themselves. But the reader appreciates the paragraph of truth. Well, the uh, but isn't, truth. The, isn't beauty, I mean, it's a, a question. I'll pose it as a question. I mean, when you say... Isn't truth beauty? Well, yes. doesn't it depend? But there's you. also there, sound. But there's also sound. Oh, you're I'm talking saying, about sonic beauty. Yes. I'm talking about periodic sentences, these words you can chew, words that you know, roll on themselves and have a rhythm. You know, that was how he was. I can't even find a rhythm in there. It's like... But because I think of like, um, isn't it pretty to think so? Yeah. If you want to talk about, but there's a l- last lines, right? Da, 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 da. There's there's rhythm that, yeah. that that's true. I mean, uh, for yeah. me, you can't get truer, more true than that yeah. b- than that book still. Yeah. yeah. And I, I always found, uh, do you not find a beauty in you know like Hemingway's prose? I've not ever been a much of a Hemingway fan. Why? 
and I think there's something really uh, stilted and it's almost like a foreigner speaking English to his prose that I like. Why? I mean, I'm much more of a Fitzgerald fan. Why is that? Because I don't really. Oh, well, but beauty think is dripping all beer. over Fitzgerald. I know. I mean, a con- that's a contradiction, I, isn't it? It's the one guy Hemingway's Frank Lloyd Wright, and the other guy. Yeah, I know. Is you're like, right. It's like this gothic thing. Yeah, and that. I mean, but it's gossamer. Like, yeah, yeah. But I just don't know whether that kind of Hemingway truth is a truth that, that is a is a subtle truth, is a is a thoughtful truth, is a contemplated truth. Particularly, I just, he's just not my particular kind of writer. When I was a graduate student, like, or when I was, a, say, a young writer in my early 20s, the guy who took the world by storm was Raymond Carver. Oh, sure. Who was sort of a modern incarnation of Hemingway. And then it gets, all gets complicated because there's all the whole business about Tess. Gordon Lish. Yeah. Also Tess Gallagher, but I'm thinking of Gordon Lish severely editing his work. Well, kind of it. showing him the, whether, right between Tess and Gordon, whether they showed him Th- this thing that he then ran with or whether they just did it, right? Yeah, and I, I don't know the full history, but it sounds to me like they kind of did it. Uh, which reminds so me, Cathedral's an incredible... Was, when I was, people should read Cathedral. Yeah, Cathedral's uh, probably his best story. Uh, when I was working, when I was a young guy, I was working at this magazine called The Iowa Review and we published a Raymond Carver story, right? It was cool, it was a Raymond Carver story, but we left out the last line by mistake, which is an unbelievable thing. Can you imagine a Raymond Carver story? And we, oops, we left out the last line. And I think, if I remember correctly, we published it in the next issue, the last line. Just the last line. Sorry, Raymond. But I'm sure by that point he was used to that. Like he thought Lish had called us or something. That's hilarious. Story. So anyway, so he came. But it's interesting because Raymond Carver was a huge influence on writers of my generation, of, of my particular age. And a lot of them are sort of recovering from that now. And it kind of also produced this anti the antithesis of that, like Michael Shaben, who kind of came out of that and said, well, I'm going to write these volcanic kind of sentences, much more like, he's a much more of a descendant of Bellow, that kind of volcanic, inventive, rhythmic interning and outturning prose. And Carver wrote this stuff that has stripped all this away. And a few years ago, I taught a class on, speaking of not liking academics, I taught a class on Raymond Carver, John Cheever, and Alice Munro. It's sort of like the the um, guideposts for, say, uh, late 20th century, early 21st century short story writing. And I, I have to say, um, I just wrote a thing about this for Powell's Bookstore, but you know how in the NBA they draft athleticism? Because you can't tell who, you know, these kids are like 19, whatever, 20. You can never tell who's going to be the best, but you go for guys who can jump, guys who can run, guys who have court sense. So if I had to pick... The most athletic of those writers verbally is Cheever. Like if, if you gave, you got to re- reread some of Cheever. If you give, if you, I, I, I do. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, so if you give him, I always feel like if you gave any every writer in the world two hundred words and said make a paragraph, Cheever would make the best paragraph out of it. So that because he he can do something internally with rhythm and also also his spirit is in there. He's got this combination of darkness and light that's really lovely. But I have to say that Munro was really the one who for whom the. Tr- the, the truth was the guide star. And for me, that held up to best by far. I mean, I think she's a, she's a, a writer unlike uh, any other. And she, to me, is going to, uh, who can predict the future? She's going to be the one who's going to have pivoted the culture. It, interestingly, when I think about the people that these people wrote about and the people you write about, particularly I'm thinking about Carver for a second, you know, you don't tend to write about the air conditioning repair person. You write about smart, real. You write about a certain kind of smart person very often. Right. Someone with incredible gifts, who feels. But this smart person uh, is also really good at whittling wood, right? 
In this, yeah, sure. In this book, the yeah. smart people are very skilled with their. Yeah. Yeah. The smart people in this book are um, almost superhero level good at a lot of different stuff, but also right. at torturing themselves. Right. But you know, your look. We we didn't do the biography piece of this, which we should, because you. It, it does seem to me like um, whether you like it or not, whether you want to, whether intellectual is the right word, you can't argue with um, that you're a hyper intelligent person and that your intelligence is manifested in a way that is has a lot of utility in the time in which you live. And so you are writing about people who have that toolkit and who are faced with wondering what the use of it really is yeah. in life. You do yeah. return to that stuff. Yeah, and I guess that's true. And I guess there is that through line. And that's you can't tell what you're going to write about. You write, you write for 40 years and... You have laid yourself bare in one way or another. Try as you might to disguise it. Uh, you can change the gender of the narrator. You can do lots of stuff. But it's very hard to write for that long and not expose yourself. And that's the truth that eventually will out. And what's interesting is that it's news to me. <laughs> you mean as you look back? Yeah. Like I didn't understand that these were certain types. Or, or certain obsessions of my right, but, own. And then you find out that they are. I mean, you can yeah. look at Palace Thief, right? And you can look at America, America, and you can look at this book, and you can pick up on a certain kind of hypocrisy and a certain kind of rules that people chafe against and that they live for certain reasons and the sort of question of the um, utility of charm and <laughs> why there shouldn't be utility, you know. Yeah, <laughs> There's a line that's on my refrigerator at home when I was a kid for some reason that said, you can smile and smile and still be a villain, Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, and that was on my refrigerator as a kid. Who knows what? I don't even know who put that on my refrigerator. My mother probably put it up there. I'm not sure what it meant or something probably had happened in I her think life. you know what it meant. <laughs> well, no, I know what it meant, but I'm, I don't know what it meant that she happened to find it. And something must have happened to her in some moment that I don't know about, uh, causing her to clip that out and tape it to the refrigerator. But... Uh, you know, you look back at the stuff that you've done over years, and like when I look at uh, another book for Kings and Planets, yeah. and also America, America, really, they kind of feel like the Great Gatsby to me in the sense that I went to Harvard Medical School. I was this kid. I grew up all over the country. I grew up a lot of my life in small Midwestern towns, and I got to Harvard Medical School, and I met sort of like this thing I'd never before, never met before, which was the power elite of the East Coast, and these. People had these magnificent houses and ancient villages, and, and they were on the phone with the treasury secretary and all this kind of stuff. And it, you know, and I really, I suddenly saw the Great Gatsby in a much different light. You know, for sure, coming from, you know, Minneapolis and East Egg, West Egg, these things that you forget how much of history or literary history has so much to do with just the story of a guy who's been traumatized by an event. Likewise, political history, you know, a lot of that in America, America was about how much of history, it's a question that actually comes up in The Palace Thief, how much of history is made, made by men sitting at tables? Well, lying. Yeah. Lying. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. Well, but I wonder what you feel like the obligation is that, right, you had this question about whether to be a doctor or a writer. Yeah. But I wonder, because this shows up too, which is like, what is the obligation of these special gifts? What obligation do you have when you're endowed with special gifts? That is, surfaces a lot. And You have uh, a little uh, Catholic boy in you. I, I can see. I know I'm an not, atheist. But yeah, yeah, so am I. But I don't have that compunction. That doesn't occur to me, the idea that obligation from gifts. I think life is a struggle for every human being. Very few can surmount 
the struggle and get over to the side where they're able to. Do you, do you not think this book, a lot of the thematic is this book, is that question? What? What your obligation is? Yeah, if you're endowed with special gift, what you're... No, I don't uh, see it You know, that for way. the son and the dad and... Uh, no, I think of it being endowed with special gifts as being endowed with special, with special um, burdens. And how to find that? What do you mean? Well, to put it as a... I don't want this to come out wrong, but say, like, if you're reasonably smart, like, it's really hard to find a date, Right. When I was in high school, I played on my basketball team, loved basketball. I had a friend, great. It was great in bars. I always met girls. People don't know that in the old days, I have to explain, you had to actually meet people in bars. And they were, they were loud, which is like a huge detriment if you, were, if you were a thinking person. You had to shout. You had to have a witty line, you know. But the real problem for me was I, I was, I, it was hard to find someone who was interested, like say, in, a bo- in books in a bar. You know, you couldn't find somebody who you felt was smart. So being, being smart is being an outcast in a lot of ways. I'm sure a lot of people feel that. Um, That's what I so I had that question to ask you, which was when you recognized that you were gifted, was that immediately like hard as opposed to easy? Um, so I, a real smart person I know once said they wish they were either 50 IQ points higher or 15 lower. Yeah, and life would have been easier. Does that make? Yeah, but you know. You only know what you know. You're, there's always things you can't understand, and that's the life you lead. You know, th- this book, the guy's, the guy talks about how his dad drank, you know, four bourbons for breakfast. He would leave his eggs and bacon, but he figured everybody did that, right? So, I, you know, I don't buy what your friend said. I, I think it's hard for everybody. Everybody wishes you were 50 points smarter or 15 points lower. I don't think you have to have, be really smart to think that. You know, it's a, life is a burden for everyone. Life has its difficulties. Everybody's got a story. One of the things I tell my students is nobody's boring. That's crazy. That's such a misunderstanding to think that somebody's leading a boring life. Everybody's got worries. Everybody's got frustrated ambition. That's true. That's why you could write about everybody. But what do you think about this idea? Because I know you've taught at Iowa for a long time, the best writing program. I mean, what's considered the most prestigious best writing program. This is a terrific program, yeah. A lot of people who listen to this show... um, uh, Who does listen to the show? These people who are... Just people in all walks of life, yeah. but many people who listen to the show are people trying to understand how to tap into the most creative part of, of who they are. And yeah. um, I get emails asking, how, how do you know? Like, how do you know if you're delusional or if you're an artist? <laughs> That's a sign you're an artist, I suppose, if you do that. Um, yeah, there's, I'd say that you know, it's about nine delusions to every artist, or more than that, or 99 delusions per, to artists. You know, it's very hard to know what you know. If you know what you know, you are way above the pack because so much of what you think you know is what you've heard. And I'm also talking about this in relation to this book, the great genius of our, geniuses of our age are people who took things that everybody knows and said, no, that's not true. I was talking about Einstein, who was trying to, you know, he couldn't make his ideas work because, of course, time is constant, right? You know, I can't get this friggin' idea. Sorry, it's hard to use that Midwestern term. I can't get this friggin' idea to work because obviously time is constant. But I said, oh, well, maybe not. Maybe time isn't constant. Maybe time changes as you speed up. And, oh, God, that's right. And I don't know if you read the piece in the Times a couple of days ago about um, four places where Einstein was wrong. Did you see that? No, I missed it. Because it was coincident with uh, well, the, the big, proving right, of the gravi- gravitational yeah. waves. And right. the, it was a very cool experiment, like, you know, to put these two little sensors that move the width of a proton apart as a gravitational wave passes through, you know, 2,000 miles apart on the Earth, and they feel it at the same moment and prove this thing. But he also had this, he was 
he was he was despairing because he thought his theory didn't work because his theory required there to be this idea that you could have this spooky action at a distance, which is where like uh, your eyes are glazing over because it's a little bit physical, but uh, this idea that the quantum effect of an atom and or an electron in an atom in Milwaukee could have an effect on at, at instantaneously on an atom in Argentina, right. and he said, oh, "I guess I'm wrong because." In order for my theories to work, this thing that's obviously wrong has to be true. And then so then later it's proved to be right. That he's right. Yeah. yeah and that's like a like he was great because he, he took things that everybody thought they knew, such as time is constant. And he said, wait a second, what if it's not? But he didn't quite do it there. Have you read that wonderful book, Einstein's Dreams? No. It's this wonderful book by Alan, is it Alan Lightman, yeah. where he posits, do you know it? I know that I've seen that book many places. It's like it's great because yeah. it's it's these little short, um, like four page yeah. ideas about the ways as Einstein was figuring out the yeah. theory of relativity, the ways in which he got it wrong, yeah, and 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 how he was yeah. trying to figure it out. It's beautiful because you get this idea that even though obviously these weren't necessarily the ways in which Einstein went wrong. It's a great book about what it means to try to do something great and creative and to yeah. keep searching, yeah. which obviously is something you're... Yeah, well, that's what this book is about for me. This, this book, uh, Doubters Almanac, is about trying to do the difficult thing, which I've always tried to do. Is You mentioned about the sincerity. That's the difficult thing, you know. To try what to is? Do, to, do, to write something sincere. Why? Why? Yeah, why it, is that difficult? Because it involves exposure. It involves... Wit is easy, you know. Wit is easy for beautiful prose. is actually kind of easy. Um, writing something dark and truthful is much more difficult. Is that part of why you turned to writing? You know, you were, um, you're obviously a great short story writer, and is part of why you turned to writing novels that it, there it's it's very yeah, difficult to sustain exactly the why. whole thing. That's exactly why. And to me, a short story now feels like oh, you need you know, 15 pages of decent prose and one good scene, and there's you got a short story, and there's enough of this idea of mystery of leaving things out that you know readers. As, ha- as have been said, are machines for making meaning. You can really, you can really get it. You can use that fact to your advantage in a short story. And Whereas then, in a novel, you can't. Well, you can also use it in a novel, but a novel is just damn hard any way you cut it. My high school English teacher was Danielle Steele when I was in eleventh grade, and where were you? In San Francisco. She had published one book, and and uh, she was teaching English, and it was a book called Passion's Promise with this gorgeous woman on the cover, and. We would sit in the back of the class, and I was on the basketball team, and you know you can imagine what it was like. But um, I have tremendous respect for that woman because she writes, you know, a novel here or or more. That is hard. They they say poetry is the hardest, but that's not true. Did you connect with her when you became a successful writer? Uh, yeah, we we exchanged emails back. She actually encouraged me tremendously. She let me turn in creative assignments, I call them, like stories instead of papers, when I was a high school student, which was. I loved that. Did you know you were a good... When you went off to be an engineer, how did you figure out that, in fact, you were a, a writer? Like, what I it was that I still journey? don't. I still don't know if I'm a writer. That journey was one of infatuation and love. I mean, I, I, you know, I felt I was an engineer. I was going to take mechanical engineering. I loved that stuff. Designing the contraptions, visualizable things. I liked mechanical engineering much more than, say, electrical engineering, where you couldn't really see it. But I love that stuff. But then I, I just happened to pick up uh, the collected stories of John Cheever, and I read that first story, which is Goodbye, My Brother, which is talk about a difficult legacy to follow. It might be his greatest short story, right? He wrote it in his 20s, and 
there are actually. I mean, the swimmers are pretty great. I hate the swimmers. I love that story. Oh, God, a, why? Brian, this is over anthologized. Well, it's anthologized because it's short. Oh, it's a beautiful. I love that All story. All right, we differ on that one. I okay, love we can. The, the Day the Pig Fell into the Well. I don't know if you remember that story. That's that's a story that nobody knows. It's, I think it's Cheever's in top, Cheever's top three or four. It's a multi-generational story about, and it's class in it, and it's about a bunch of family returning to this um, uh, vacation house and the the guys who work the land and trying to infiltrate. It's very, very Amy's been reading the collected Cheever oh, recently, good for, so yeah. I'll grab it from her. Yeah, and read, read that. that. Story. That's that's one of my favorites. But I um, mean, yeah, I just read that story that that first paragraph and talking about the the uh, we are a family that has always been close in spirit and blah blah blah, and then this. God, I just, you know, I still kind of tear up, but I think of some of these stories. Um, and these great endings, uh, the country husband, the women walking out oh, of the sea. Amazing, and, yeah. Um, yeah. That's an incredible. And, they're, and the pot of gold. He's, you know, there are paragraphs in there that are just exquisite. But so you read those things and you knew they hit you incredibly hard. Yeah. But what was the thing that then made you say, I want to do, I'm going to do this? Or what was it like to then have that, like, as you said, to sincerely attack doing it. Yeah. You know, how can you explain that? I, there's this thing that happens. It's been said that a writer is a reader moved to emulation. And I felt that. I, you know, can you explain that? No, it's inexplicable. Why does why does reading something beautiful make you, it's perhaps, perhaps it's like hugely egotistical. Or, or perhaps it's, it's, it's very modest and devotional. I, don't, I still haven't figured it out. I still feel, I feel myself as a writer to be modest and devotional and devoted to the beauty of it. But there's also this, you know, ego of publishing something and going around and, but you have to be an acolyte. You have to be a worshiper at the altar of beauty. Not just beauty, but I, for me, a great part of art is degree of difficulty. You know, when I read a novel like Sacred Hunger, Barry Unsworth's great novel about a slave ship or the Deptford Trilogy. Elwood Reed loves, Elwood Reed loves Barry. He's oh, me God, yeah, yeah. And yeah, he just died maybe two years ago now. Um, just a gentle, gentle man. I met him and I... Robertson, you were talking about Robertson Davies? Though? No, I was, I was talking about Barry Unsworth right but, there. I never met Davies, but the Deptford Trilogy Depper is Trilogy, extraordinary. Davies, oh, right. my God. The the, uh, See, the I could never I never could get into Robertson. You have really? to explain to me. Oh God! I oh, love well, you that. don't have to do this now. But yeah. I, you got to tell me why, where. Like he's one of those great writers that I've had an impossible time. Did you try loving. the Deptford trilogy? Yeah, I years. Like, I mean, twenty years uh, ago, a friend of mine was like, "You have to read that." I remember just feeling like I was banging up against this wooden kind of prose, and I couldn't. Huh. Find well, my the way three in. books are so different, and one of them is just a tra- uh, transcript of a. I think a, I believe it's a Jungian analysis. It's like dialogue, 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 dialogue. I'm excited but, to try again now that yeah. you say that he's was he was important to you when you were yeah, younger. but yeah, he was inspirational in the sense of the degree of difficulty of those books. You know, the, um, the I'm forgetting all the uh, names. You mean of pulling them off of inventing that much massive, you know, that that massive a world. Say in the f- first one about the circus. And then at the same time, invented massively inward in the second book, which is, as I said, a transcript of, a, of an analysis of one of the characters. But were you reading this stuff when you were starting to, to write? I can't remember when I was reading all this stuff. But it's, it is that, it, what, I, what I'm saying is the degree of difficulty is huge for me. And sure, story is not that difficult. You know, some of Alice Munro's stories seem difficult to me. They almost seem novelistic. But writing a, writing a novel... Right. I mean, Saunders stories. Saunders stories not feel difficult to you? They feel less difficult than Alice Munro's stories to me, honestly. Um, I, I mean, I find them wonderful and, and charming, and he's a sweetheart of a human being. But they don't have, to me, that scope of time and distance. 
that Alice Monroe has. Right. That's interesting. I, I mean, I I can somehow I straddle as a reader, and perhaps it's because I write I write movies and television, so I'm writing in a different medium. Yeah. So I when I look at those short stories, since I'm not going to insert myself, I'm just they're just hitting me as a, a fan completely. Yeah. yeah. And that's probably I look at Bullet in the Brain by Tobias Wolf as like. That's everything I could ever imagine. That's so to funny because I love Toby Wolf's story, but that's my least favorite of his stories, and it's often anthologized. And I, to me, that story was, and you know, it might be a little bit of inside baseball. To me, that story was Toby got a bad review, and now he's going to write a story about shooting a critic in the head, or about how a critic had lost. I love the last line. Of the well, story, I was going to say is, where it builds to the last line. How can you say oh that? Oh my because god, of what it's, it it's one of the to. great last lines. Shortstop is the best position. Yeah, day is. I, mean, I love I mean, that. To but, me, and that's gorgeous. But that's you know. Five pages of decent prose and a great line. That makes a short story. I mean, I love Toby Wolf, and, and he's one of he's, – he's a fabulous short story writer. And he can write – if you want to learn about scene construction, how to write a scene, how to write a story that actually does the difficult thing, which is, you know, sustain interest, trick you, have, have moral interest, he does it all. But to me, that, that's a little trifle among his other stuff. And again, I think I feel like, I feel like it's anthologized because it's short. The same. I way. got That's to that story through an incredible short film that was made about that. I yeah. hadn't read it in an anthology. There's an amazing short film starring Tom yeah. Noonan that was made yeah. out of Bullet in the Brain. Interesting. And I loved the short film, and I was like, "That's a Toby Wolf story that I missed." Uh, yeah. And then I went back and got the story. Yeah, how did they get the shortstop is the best position? They is incredible. The film. short story is the the short film. I'll send it to you. Yeah. It's put it in the show notes, Jason. The short yeah. stories. Yeah, uh, I mean the um, the short film is yeah. amazingly great. Yeah, but maybe it's that's what I'm talking about. As a as a as a mechanic, I'm looking at this thinking that's a mechanic looks at how to make something that that was not that hard to make. Well, Sacred th- Hunger th- was hard to make. This is a question I, I had too, which is um, and you're kind of answering it in a great way, which is clearly reading is still very important to you. You're still grappling with stuff as you're reading. Yeah. Are you? Are you? But it's very much it's very much inside stuff. Like I, I, I it's a lot of ways I've lost the pleasure of reading. That, I want to. That's what I was asking. I'm, saying, I'm reading this book. I'm saying, okay, there he's doing that. He's he's planting a bomb here. He's going to detonate that. You know, watch that. It's going to come back in 100 pages from now. So you can't get swept away unless it's no, an old I can't. Dead I, person. No, no, not at all. I can be swept away by a, by a young live person, and it happens a lot, but not all the time. It happens some. I'd say it happens infrequently, but it happens, and I can get swept away. And you lo- you still want that to happen? Oh my God! Yeah. Yeah, and that and that's why can it happen that's with why your... I, that's the sincerity thing. That's when I, I get swept away by the sincerity. I do not get swept away by by what people call pyrotechnics and prose. I do not get swept away by a lot of this. And I do not get swept away by wit. I think wit is in a lot of ways damaging to fiction. Wit is a so right. you mean you read Martin Amis and you don't care. Well, I I read these writers who who make. I just feel like I'm I'm listening to a writer, not to the character. When I read the writers I really love, like we mentioned Roth, or like I mentioned. Um, Alice Monroe Philip a couple Roth, times. Yeah. yeah, Philip Roth and Alice Monroe a couple times. I feel like I'm not reading, and their prose is beautiful. You know, you can look at a paragraph of them; it's really nice, but doesn't like. It's not like even a par- It's not like a paragraph of cheap. It's not even like a paragraph of Bellow. They're more interested in truth than in fancy clothes for the prose. Like I find William Kennedy. I don't know if you like William Kennedy. Yeah, but he seems like an offshoot of Bellow to me. I mean, he seems like. I, I believe Bella was the one who discovered William Kennedy, um, and there's I love William Kennedy's writing, but it also it has that kind of uh, volcanic, kind of eruptive. Yeah, well, he's able to do this very plain spoken reportorial thing because yeah. he was a reporter, yeah. and that stuff exists. It's this very kind of Irish, yeah, um, bare bones thing, and then 
like Irish yeah. storytellers can yeah. then get b- uh, yeah. bigger. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because there are people like Mark Hel- Mark um, Helprin who Helprin was a is well is a gifted guy. Oh, I, I'm I separate the <laughs> politics. I love Mark Helprin's books. Yeah, uh, because to me. He can do the most. Talk about describing yeah. the, the, the natural world. Yeah, talk about being an athlete. Like he's, you know, he's another athlete. Right. He can describe the natural world yeah. in the most incredible way, but is also and some of those stories completely like, uh, sincere. Yeah. Right. In, in in when you read Memoir from Amphrof Case or you read A Soldier of the Great War, uh, yeah. there's complete sincerity yeah. at play. He's he's an uh, an aesthete actually, is what yeah. he would. He really cares about beauty and and hope. Yeah, and probably is is. Yeah, is actively opposed to the whims of the times. I look at his politics. It's, he's totally out of step with most writers, and you know that's probably something to do with his rigidity. I, I don't mean that in a uh, negative sense, but it's just his strength of conviction. Yes, his strength whatever. of conviction about yeah. what what's right and what's wrong. Yeah, and what ma- really what he would say about what matters. Yeah, but he's out of fashion. I know, and that's but what you're saying. You you who want cares? Who right. cares? I don't know what you'd want. I mean, writing a book, what do you want? I mean, there's never enough readers. You're never successful enough. That I've learned long well, ago. Well, yeah, how do you feel? Do you feel like this is like this life has given you the things you'd hoped it would? Absolutely. Oh, my God. You know, I have, I have a nice house. I have th- three healthy children. I can walk outside and be under the trees. I, you know, I can live. I can chop wood and build houses. I am, yeah, it's given me everything. I would not want a life of real literary celebrity. Or to be a public intellectual, to be asked to tweet about this and tweet about that. I stay away from that stuff. You don't, you're not on social media at all? No. I actually I accidentally sent a tweet today, but I, I tried to take it back. And I, 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 tried think to, I, I couldn't I, find you on Twitter. Yeah. Are you on Twitter? As What's your name on there? Uh, my name is E-C-A-N-I-N, E-Canin, because somebody has taken my name. Whoever oh. that is should, 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 should give it back. Man, I, I, I just want to say that um, the way you got emotional for a second talking about the Cheever story... Um, I've basically kept it together doing this, but I do feel that way about your books. And oh, um, thanks, Brian. You've had a, an enormous, uh, just an enormous impact on me. And I, I please keep keep writing the books. And you know, man, Thank if a you. short story occurs to you, don't don't beat yourself up. Just write this fucking short. I story. have a few short stories, and you know, I got another, you're fu- you're good I, at it. I got like, another, it may be easy to you. Yeah, but I don't want to write. I, I, maybe I could write more like the Palace Flank stories, which are kind of like um, medium to longish stories. I'm much more interested in that than. I don't know. 10, I mean, don't you wish stories? Barry Sanders played one more season? <laughs> but you know these. Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. You know, right. could, we, I'd right. like to see him run. Who's that? Who's, you that? Like who to is see that? Him run? Uh, who's the great? Oh God! Who's the guy who walked away when he was tackled from behind? Um, I forget what running back that was, and I kind of feel like Gail Sayers. No, no, it wasn't Gail Sayers. Well, Jim Brown did stop to go become yeah. a movie star. Yeah, uh, the I greatest would, athlete I, ever, but um, arguably the greatest athlete ever. Yeah. Uh, Ethan, thanks for doing this, man. Listen, people should go. Is it over already? It can be. All right. We can keep going. No, it's good. No, it's good. I just kind of, it went quickly. Thank you, Brian. It was a pleasure. You've, you've been very kind over the years. I appreciate it. Um, and uh, you can you should really be I kind of people. Look like I, I feel like I'm looking at my doppelganger. Yeah, we, we look alike uh, in a way. Um, <laughs> you're like a more handsome version. But here's the thing. Um, and that, smarter. That, that, annoyingly, is, that is not Annoyingly true. smarter. You're the younger looking version. Annoyingly smarter. Difference. Here's the thing. Um, a Doubter's Almanac is out now. And uh, it is a truly great novel. So is America, America. And if you don't have that much time, go get Emperor of the Air or The Palace Thief, which you can read in shorter bursts because I know novels scare people. And I would say if you read Emperor or the stories in Palace Thief, 
First of all, you have a big understanding of America, but also it would make you want to read Doubter's Almanac because you'd want to spend more time living in the empathetic, uh, sincere, and whether you like it or not, really smart um, world of Ethan Kanan. So uh, thanks, Ethan. Hope we get to do this again when your next book comes Brian, out. that was great. Thank you. All right, guys, you can find me because I am on social media because I don't have to sit down to write novels. I'm just writing television and <laughs> I have the time. I can tweet any fucking time I want to. You can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. And um, thanks for listening. If you like the show, please leave a good review on iTunes and tell your friends about it. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. On Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, Bates Motel reopens on A&E for its fourth season. A modern-day prequel to Alfred Hitchcock's iconic film Psycho, Bates Motel stars Freddie Highmore as Norman Bates and Vera Farmiga in the Emmy-nominated role of Norma. This season finds Norma and Norman suspicious of one another, and their trust issues will be worse than ever as their mother-son relationship continues to crumble. Watch Norman evolve into the infamous Norman Bates as the season finds him completely losing his grip on reality. Bates Motel knows how to deliver the crazy, and season four promises to get crazier than ever. Be sure to tune into Bates Motel Monday, March 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern on A&E. Hi, I'm Ezra Klein, editor-in-chief of Vox.com, and I've got a new podcast on the Panoply Network. It is called The Ezra Klein Show, which I'm never going to be able to say without feeling like a terrible, terrible narcissist. But it's long-form, intimate, real conversations with newsmakers, with politicians, policymakers, journalists, business leaders, people who are influencing the world in fascinating and important ways. We talk about what they think, why they think it, what they believe. I've really enjoyed getting a chance to talk with these people, and I hope you enjoy it too. You can find it wherever fine podcasts are given away for free over the internet.